0: Well, it was great to see all of you. It has been the best weekend of the year. Can I get a witness? It's been awesome to be together. And if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Uh, while you're turning there, I just want to, first of all, give a shout out to the 11th grade girls who've been staying at the A-Bear house. We're so glad that y'all came and hung out with us. Uh, best, best group ever. And uh, so thankful for the best youth ministry staff in the nation. So thankful for their hard work. And our apprentices, our college leaders—can we hear it for our college group leaders? All of our adult volunteers, let's hear it for them. Yep, 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 yep. A pastor who got in the dunking booth. Okay. Well, jokes on you, because now you're all wet with the rain coming down. This is—you're uh, all sprinkled. There's lots of baptisms going on, but we we believe in full immersion, which is why it came down so hard today. Um, but it's great to see all of you. It's been a wonderful weekend together and so thankful what the Lord is doing in, our, in the lives of our students. Genesis chapter 16 is where we're gonna be this morning. Um, I've told you that I wanted to be a major league baseball player uh, when I was a young man. I just lacked the size, uh, the speed, and the skill. Uh, but when I was 12 years old, my, my baseball skill got even worse. My 12, 12 years old, uh, my batting average went from uh, about average to, to awful and just took a total dip. I went from being a kind of mediocre run of the mill hitter to not being able to to hit anything. That was also the season that I found out that I had to have glasses. And uh, you know that advice where your coach says, keep your eye on the ball. It's only good if you can actually see that there is a ball there and I could not. And so I went to the eye doctor, realized that I needed to have uh, some prescription lenses And all of a sudden I realized that trees have things called leaves. It was amazing. You could see the detail and all of these things. I had been Uh, short-sighted. To be short-sighted means that you you can see clearly what's right in front of you, but you can't see much further than that. Genesis chapter 16 is an example of short-sightedness in the the lives of Abram and Sarai. It's an example of how they live based on what they can see, which is not much at all. They act like Lot in Genesis chapter 13. They make a decision based not on what God could see, but based on what they could see. It's an example of short-sighted faith. The life of Abram up to this point in the story in Genesis is really like a spiritual seesaw. It's just a series of ups and downs. He has mountaintop moments and valley moments. We've just had a mountaintop experience uh, here with Spark Weekend. It's a mountaintop experience to see nine students getting baptized and hearing people cheer like they cheer for Taylor Swift in the Super Bowl. It was awesome. That's a mountaintop moment, but you can't live on the mountain. Okay, a walk with Jesus has not lived on the mountaintop. It's, it's lived in the seasons of ups and downs. You're going to have mountaintop moments, but you're also going to have valley moments. That was true to Abram's story. So his, his story begins with a mountaintop moment where God reveals himself to him in Genesis chapter 12 and makes promises to him. He's going to bless him. He's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a great nation that comes from him. He's going to give him offspring and descendants as innumerable as the stars of the sky. And that's a mountaintop moment. But that's followed immediately with a valley where in uh, Genesis chapter 12, the end of that chapter, it says a famine comes into the land and there's a disruption in Abram's story. And he goes down to the land of Egypt and he, he's married to a very beautiful woman. He's afraid that Pharaoh is gonna see the beauty of his wife and have him killed and take his wife. And so Abram acts in compromise. He, he compromises, he acts with a lack of integrity and he lies about his wife. He says that Sarai is his sister instead of his wife. And so Pharaoh takes Sarah uh, into his harem, and Abram has prospered from this. He is is personally, uh, he's protected, he's prospered, but he endangers his wife in that moment, and a a curse comes on Pharaoh's house. All of this happens because Abram is trying to take things into his own hands to try to secure the outcome of these promises that God has made. It's a a low moment in Abram's life. So it's just back and forth, up and down, up and down, spiritual seesaw through four chapters uh, of Abram's life in Genesis we're told great statements, though, about Abram's faith, that in the midst of all of this up and down stuff, that he's still trusting God. His, his faith is not perfect. His faith is not without failure. But in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abram believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. And that's an important statement because it tells us how we can be accepted by God, that the basis of our acceptance by God is not religion, it is not our moral self-effort, it's simply trusting God. And if you can trust God, then you can be accepted by God. This is a great statement about Abram's faith. Abram was constant in his faith, even though he experienced ups and downs. That's the way we ought to be in our faith as well. You will not have a perfect walk with God, amen? not be perfect. You'll have ups and downs. But what matters is that Abram had what, what one author called a long obedience in the same direction. He just continued to pursue God in the midst of that. In Genesis chapter 16, we come to one of the lowest moments in Abram's life. We, we come to a, a section in this chapter where there's an epic failure on Abram's side. Here in Genesis chapter 16, God has made promises to Abram to to give him children and, and a nation, but by chapter 16, God has not come through on what God said he would do. God has not fulfilled his promise yet. He has delayed his promise. Abram has been waiting on God. How many of you have ever had to wait on God for something? Anybody, three of you? Anybody else have to wait on God for something in your life? How frustrating is that, right? We don't like to wait on anything. We, we get impatient in the fast food drive-through line when it takes more than five minutes. We, we get impatient staring at the microwave, waiting for two minutes for our popcorn to be done. We get impatient. We get impatient with commercials. So we just, we just TiVo it, right? and we Fast forward right through those commercials because we don't like to wait. What about when God delays? What about when you have to wait on God? Well, that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 16. This delay causes a doubt to emerge in Abram's heart. And so once again, just like in chapter 12, Abram takes things into his own hands. So let's look at it together. The story begins with a sinful choice on Abram's part. Let's begin in chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave Named Hagar. Sarah, said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And literally, this is what it says in Hebrew. Abram obeyed his wife. Abram goes along with it. He agrees to what Sarah said. So, verse three. Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. Notice that detail. Verse 4, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. And that's where we're going to stop right now. Isn't this a great verse for Spark Weekend? (laughs) I was wondering, okay, Lord, what do you have for us today? All these students in the room, we're going to talk about slaves getting impregnated. Um, And then I looked to Genesis 17, which is about circumcision, it can always be worse. <laughs> Come back next week, kids. <laughs> so the story the story begins with a problem. Okay? The problem is verse 1. Uh, that Sarah had not born any children to, to Abraham. You say, why is that prob- a problem? Well, because God had promised Abram back in chapter 12 that he would give him a nation, that he would give him offspring. And then from chapter 12 to chapter, 20, uh, chapter 16, God begins to reiterate that promise. He, he reminds him again and again, I'm gonna give you children. And in fact, he, he clarifies the promise and he says, uh, just like you can't count the sand on the seashore, and if you go out on a night sky, you can't count the number of stars in the sky, you're going to have that many kids and grandkids. You're going to have kids who have kids who have kids, and you're, you're going to have a whole people come from you. That's the promise that God has made to Abram. But here we are now 10 years later, and Sarai still has not gotten pregnant. We're told why in chapter 11, verse 30, It says that that Sarai was unable to conceive. So she's infertile. She can't have kids. So this promise almost feels cruel. To make a promise to an infertile couple. There are going to be a lot of kids who come from you. Think about the burden that Sarai must have been carrying for this decade. God has promised her husband not just a child, but many descendants. And now it's been just years. Year after year, no kids. And, it's, and, and Sarah's not getting any younger, right? She is no spring chicken. Okay, that's the original Hebrew. <laughs> write that out in the margin. No spring chicken. She's just getting older at this point. So, so the fulfillment of God's promises are completely less and less likely. It's like with every it, with every passing month that she's not pregnant, it, it's like she's just watching any possibility of God's promises being fulfilled just slipping right through her fingers. And every month that she doesn't get pregnant, it just draws the focus back to her infertility. She's the reason that there's been no child. She can't get pregnant. That's, that's not only a burden, that is a very deep grief wasn't just hers to bear. It was also Abram's. You imagine the pressure that Abram would have felt. God has made you promises. You come out and you share with your family. Hey, God, God spoke to me. God made promises to me. And we're, we're going to have kids. We're going to have grandkids. There's going to be a great nation. And then nothing. The next year, nothing. Ten years later... Nothing, imagine the pressure that he would have felt. And so he begins to try to, mm, try to make something happen here. Chapter 15, he, he thinks that maybe the whole plan for how he's gonna have a nation is that he's gonna adopt a servant who lived in his house by the name of Eleazar. But God clarifies in chapter 15, no, Abram, it's gonna come from your own body. And Abram, like Sarah, is just getting older. We're told at the end of the story, he's in his mid 80s at this point, right? So very unlikely. So there's a sense of growing impatience with the Lord here. Verse 3 includes this detail that they have been in Canaan for 10 years at this point. The reason that that d- detail is in there is, is to clue you in on the fact that they have been waiting on God a long time. 10 years is a long time to wait for God to do what He said He would do. When is God going to come through? Can anybody relate with this story? Have you ever had to wait on the Lord for anything? You're, you're wondering. God, when are you going to do what you said you're going to do? Maybe you're, you're, you're waiting and there's a desire in your heart to be married one day. You've been waiting on the Lord for that. You've been waiting on that spouse and it just doesn't seem like it's happening. Maybe, maybe you went through college hoping, hoping that God would bring that special someone. And you get through college and they're not there. You start in your career and you expect, maybe by the time I hit my late 20s, I'll be married. I'll start to have kids and you get to 30 and it's not happening. And you're just waiting on the Lord. When is the Lord going to come through for me? Or maybe you're married and you're waiting for a child. Maybe it's the desire of your heart to have children. Maybe, maybe God has given you a, a desire to love children. And you maybe look at people who don't seem like they look their, love their kids very much, but they have kids. You know that you would care for a child well. You know that you would love that child. And yet there's no, no children. You're just waiting. Maybe you're waiting on the Lord for a job. Maybe you're waiting on the Lord for an answer about your future. Maybe you're waiting on the Lord for a breakthrough. Maybe, maybe you're waiting on the Lord for an answer to a prayer that you've been praying for a long time. Maybe you've been asking God to do something for a very long time. Maybe you've been praying for a family member to come to Jesus, and it seems like God is just not moving on the timetable that you want him to move on. And you, you believe he can do this, but it just doesn't look like he's going to do it. What do you do when it doesn't seem like God is moving? And what do you do when you face what seems to be an impossible situation? I mean, that's where Abram and Sarai are at. This seems like an impossible thing to happen. This is an immovable mountain. Have children, have descendants, have a nation. We can't even have a child. And by the way, verse two includes a key detail about Sarai's <clears throat> theology here. It shows that not only is there a delay in the story, there's doubt that is creeping into her heart and a mistrust in God. Verse two shows us this key detail. She believes that the Lord has the power over the womb. Look at what she says. Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. See, Sarah understood that God can open the womb and he can close the womb. she understood that the the miracle of birth is not just something a, a husband and a wife do, it's something that God does. She she knows, in other words, that it's not a question of whether God could give her kids, but God in, it seems to her, has chosen not to give her kids. In other words, it's not that God couldn't give her kids, it's that God wouldn't give her kids. And see, that's a whole different kind of grief. When you know that God is able to do something, but won't do something for you. He's got the power to do it, but it doesn't seem like he has the desire to do it. There's almost a sense of accusation against the Lord here. He has withheld children from me. The Lord could give us kids, but he isn't giving us kids. That's, that's frustrating, isn't it? To know that God could do something for you, but it just seems like he won't. So what do they do? Well, Abram and Sarai make a terrible decision in verse 2. They decide to help God be God Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. They decide that God's not moving like they want him to move. And so they decide to give God a hand. They decide to help God be God. They say, okay, well, uh, in chapter 15, God promised that it would be through Abram's body that a child would come. But he didn't say anything about Sarah." So maybe God will use Abram's body with a different woman's body. So they take a slave, and Sarai gives the slave to her husband. Now, if you're thinking this is awful, it's because it's awful. Okay, you're like, well, this is a hard story in the Bible. Listen, the Bible is true to life. The Bible doesn't gloss over the messiness of people's lives. This really happened, and it is as bad as it looks. Now, it's as bad as it looks, but it was customary at that time, surrogacy through a servant. This was a normal thing to do in that day and time. If you were infertile, you couldn't have kids yourself. It was normal if you had servants in your house to use a servant to try to have children. So Sarai is doing what makes sense to her. She is doing what is normal with the times. She's doing what would have been maybe even expected. She can't see any way that God's gonna keep her promise through her. So she sees her servant and gives her to Abram. This was probably some of the advice that she was getting from her friends out on the tennis court. Hey, what about Hagar? Maybe that's how God will bring this whole thing about. So she does what's rational, right? She does what makes sense. Okay, I'll try this. It's an ironic reversal, of course, of Genesis 12. Genesis 12, Abram gives his wife to an Egyptian. Now Genesis 16, Sarai gives an Egyptian to her husband. And we're told, verse 2, something that's happening in Sarah. She says, well, maybe through her, I can build a family. Notice that phrase, I can build. This is something that Sarah thinks by using Hagar, this is something she can build. That that phrase should ring a little bit of a bell for you because it's used in chapter 11 and verse 4 in reference to the people of the Tower of Babel. They say, "Let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens." It's the same word in Hebrew, bana. I will build a family. This is human self-effort. Let's see what we can do. We can build a tower. We can build a family. We can use our own power. We can use our own resources. doesn't seem like God's doing anything. So we'll take it from here, God. We can build this thing ourselves. They're like lots here, walking by sight, not by faith. We can't see the Lord doing what we want, so let's do what we can do. They're trying to manufacture something. They're trying to make something happen here. God isn't moving as fast as we want him to move. He isn't doing what we want him to do. So let's give him a hand. That that strategy is as old as time. For a long time, humans have taken things into their own hands to try to get God to do what they want, whether by hook or by crook. In fact, I read an article this week uh, that as far back as 5000 BC, some cultures believe that avocados possessed magical properties as a fertility symbol. And so they would offer them as sacrifices to their gods. They believed that they could manipulate God into giving them children, right? Now, look, I love guacamole, just like the next person. That's kind of a weird thing, right? They just think like, okay, what's the little magic potion? What's the rabbit's foot? What's the incantation? How can we force God to do what we want him to do? We want God to do what we want, no matter what, at all costs, which is just another way of restating Genesis 3, 5 Adam and Eve, you remember, they said, we want to be like God. And so Abram and Sarah do this, but they do it by departing from God's design. God's design for marriage and for sex is that sexual intimacy is only to be experienced in the context of a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. That's God's design for marriage here, Sarai has done the unthinkable. She has introduced a third person into the relationship. She, she has said, listen, it doesn't matter about the ethics of this. I want this so badly. I am willing to just ignore what God has called us to do in marriage to get what I want. She's going to depart from God's design. Genesis chapter two tells us how marriage and sex and relationships are supposed to work. One man, one woman for life. Enjoy it within that context, within those boundaries and only within those boundaries. Sarai ignores all of that and says, I want what I want so bad. I don't care what God wants. I'll do it my way. And listen, you, you, any departure from God's design in any area of your life will always, always lead to brokenness. Here they are trying to seek God's blessing apart from God. You cannot seek the blessing of God apart from God. If you want the blessing of God on your life, listen, God's blessing only comes when we do God's will, God's way, in God's timing. Amen? Here, she could care less about any of that. And so this departure from God's design leads them to dehumanize their neighbor. They take Hagar. They don't treat her like a person. They treat her like property. Sarai takes her slave, hands her over to Abram, the the language here is reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. You remember back in the Garden of Eden, Eve saw the fruit. She took the fruit and she gave it, taking and giving. She took the fruit and gave it to her husband, Adam, who was with her. Here's the same language, the language of taking and giving. She takes her servant, Hagar, gives her to her husband, Abram, this is supposed to jog your memory. It's supposed to say that we're, we're talking about the act of rebellion that is reminiscent of the fall of mankind in the garden. And, and look, at, look at Abram. He's just completely passive in all of this. It, it says literally he obeyed his wife. He just goes along with it. No red flags, no objections. Abram doesn't stop and say, hold up, maybe we ought to think about what we're doing here for a moment. It just He agrees with his wife, he takes the slave, and he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. Think about Abram's character here. I mean, beyond manipulating the circumstances to try to get what he wants, he's completely abdicating any kind of role as a spiritual leader in his family. And he's also mistreating Hagar here. Together, they treat her like property. They, they believe that the ends justifies any means whatsoever. They, they want a godly result. They want children. That's Children are a blessing. It's a good thing. But they're willing to do any kind of ungodly means to get there. Folks, for Christians, the, the ends and the means matter. Amen? It matters how you get there. They don't care about that. They're not going to wait on God. They're tired of waiting. They're not going to trust God. They're tired of trusting. They're not going to pray to God. They're tired of asking. Instead, they decide to rush God's timing and ignore God's way. Instead, taking things into their own hands and disaster follows. Things get worse in verse 4. I want you to notice this sinful choice leads to some sad consequences. Let's look down at verse 4. He slept with Hagar. She became pregnant. And when Hagar saw that she was pregnant, her mistress, Sarai, became contemptible to her. In Hebrews, literally, she became contemptible in her sight. Notice that. So Hagar gets pregnant. It's, it, the plan works. The, this, this devilish plot to go around God's way to get what they wanted, it worked. Hagar gets pregnant, and, but then she becomes proud. I mean, she's, she has now received the blessing that had been given to Abram and Sarai, she's gotten the blessing. She's gotten this offspring. And so there's a sense in which she's displaced her mistress. And now Sarai is literally contemptible in her sight. Think, think about that. There an irony there. Abram and Sarai have been walking by sight, not faith. Now Sarai is seen as nothing in Hagar's sight. And that introduces a conflict in their marriage. Look down in verse 5. This shows us their consequences, right? Here's some of the sad consequences. There's consequences for Abram and Sarai that are going to follow them the rest of their life. Look at verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she, saw, uh, when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. What's happening right here? Finger pointing. It's your fault. Does this sound like the Garden of Eden? Blame shifting. It's this woman you gave me. <laughs> she gave me. Well, no, it's the serpent that, that, that tempted us. Here, Sarai says, it's Abram's fault. And you know what? Although Sarai bears responsibility, she's exactly right. It is Abram's fault. At no point in this story does Abram say, oh, we shouldn't be doing this. Nobody forced him to sleep with Hagar. He he is at fault. Abdicating any kind of leadership, participating willingly in this sinful plot. And now Sarai says, I'm suffering because of you. She's right. But this introduces a conflict in their relationship. Not only are there consequences for Abram and Sarai, there are consequences for Hagar. Hagar. Look at verse 6. Abram replied to Sarai, here your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Literally, do what is good to her in your sight. And so Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. This tells us something about Abram's view of women. He viewed women as expendable. This is now the second time in Abram's story that he has allowed a woman to be thrown into a situation that endangered her. The first time was in Genesis chapter 12 when he allows his wife to go into Pharaoh's harem where who knows what could happen to her. Now the second time, Hagar puts her into the hands of his cruel wife to do whatever seems right in her eyes to do. Hagar, the mother of his child now who Sarah had given to him to be a wife. Now he could care less for her and allows her to be abused and mistreated. If you've ever been abused, dehumanized, or mistreated by someone in authority, <clears throat> that is wrong. It's a good place for an amen. That is wrong. And if that's ever happened to you, you can identify with Hagar. Hagar. Abram tells Sarai, literally, do to her what is good in your sight. They, they continue to walk by sight, seeing what they could see. Sarai mistreats her. This an interesting word choice. It's the same word used in chapter 15 and verse 13, where God tells Abram that his descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years, where they're going to be mistreated, oppressed, afflicted. Now the same word is used to describe how Sarai is treating Hagar. There's an irony there as well. What's going to be inflicted upon Abram's children by the Egyptians is now inflicted upon an Egyptian by Abram's wife. So Hagar runs away. She's a single mom. Verse 7 tells us she, she, she heads to the wilderness of Shur. Now I know you know where the wilderness of Shur is, right? I had to look it up. It's down towards Egypt. So what's happening is she's running from Canaan back home. She's running home to Egypt. She's going to give a birth to a son. Is she give birth to a son. They're going to name him Ishmael. And we see that there are consequences for Ishmael. So there's consequences for Abram and Sarai. There are consequences of the sinful choice for Hagar. There are consequences for her son, Ishmael. Look, look down in verses 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Now, verse 12 describes the character of her son, Ishmael. This man will be like a wild donkey. That's a, that's a biblical way of saying he's going to be out of control. This is like the first wild teenage son. His hand will be against everyone. He's going to be a fighter. And everyone's hand will be against him. He'll, he'll, be, in, he'll be despised. And in a very sad statement, he will settle, settle near all of his relatives. Not with his relatives. He'll live near his relatives. You know the rest of Ishmael's story we'll look at in the next few weeks. But Ishmael's going to be sent away later in the story. He's going to become a wanderer. For the rest of his life, he'll be in conflict with others. That creates consequences. Listen, not just for Abram and Sarai, not just for Hagar, not just for Ishmael. It's going to create consequences for the people of Israel because the descendants of Ishmael are going to come into conflict with the descendants of Isaac. And now they're going to be enemies. Which means, listen... There are consequences of Abram and Sarai's choice, not just for Abram and Sarai, not just for Hagar, not just for Ishmael, not just for Israel. There are consequences of Genesis chapter 16 for you and for me today. You can trace the modern Arab Israeli conflict, including what is happening in Gaza right now, to this story. The descendants of Ishmael, Ishmael's going to give birth to 12 sons. Sounds kind of familiar, right? There's another who has 12 sons, but the 12 sons of Ishmael are going to become 12 Arab princes. Their descendants will become primarily Islamic, and they will be in conflict with the Jewish people throughout history. They still are in conflict. If you turn on the news today and you watch what's happening in the Gaza, it's because of the sinful choice in Genesis chapter 16. Sin has consequences. I'm thankful that through Jesus, what he's done for us in his death and resurrection, there is forgiveness for sin. Forgiveness for sin is available, but consequences are inevitable. Amen? When you choose to depart from God's design, run over anyone in the process of trying to get what you want, consequences are going to come. Where's God in all of this? Seems like God is absent. (laughs) This is messy. This is like a soap opera. And by the way, it gets worse. Keep, wait, it's going to go downhill from here. It's, it's a lot of drama. We just see ripple effects. But in the midst of all of that sinful choosing and all of those sad consequences, all hope is not lost. No, as Mrs. Doubtfire would put it, help is on the way, dear. <laughs> but God, we, we are going to see God's sovereign care in the midst of this story, in the midst of Abram's mess, in, in the midst of this just total disaster that has happened in his family, God is still at work. So let's see what happens. Look at verses seven and eight. Verse seven, says, the angel of the Lord, so Hagar right runs away. She's running away from Sarai. She goes down to this wilderness. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Let's just stop right there and just say, this is worth pausing and sitting on that no matter how far you run from God, God can find you. How many of you have ever been to the land of Shure? Anybody ever been to the wilderness of Sure? Not metaphorically, literally. Have you ever, you've been there, Emily? No? Okay, anybody else ever been to the wilderness of Sure? Anybody know where the wilderness of Sure is? Okay, I had to look it up. None of us have been there. None of us know where that is. That's where she goes. She goes to this abandoned wilderness and God found her even there. No matter how far you run, no matter where you go, she's going to the backwoods. The Lord found her there. Not only did he find her, he begins to speak to her. And he begins to say three things to her. The first thing he says is in verse nine, uh, verse eight. He says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, but look around at verse nine. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. Second thing he says is verse 10. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. Now that sounds a lot like the promise that he made to Abram to give him descendants that would be multiplying. Then the third thing he says in verse 11, he says, you've conceived and will have a son. You'll name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. So what's going on here? Well, the Lord promises to bless Hagar by giving her a son and multiplying her descendants. That, that, that's very similar to that promise back in Genesis chapter twelve that God makes to Abram. And what's amazing here to me is that He He's blessing here an outsider. An Egyptian, an Egyptian slave, a female Egyptian slave at that. God is in the blessing business. He just hands out blessing everywhere he goes. He loves to bless his people. And the whole book of Genesis is all about how God blesses different kinds of people. In Genesis chapter one, he creates Adam and Eve, and he blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. He blesses Noah, he blesses Abram, he blesses all kinds of people. Here he comes to a female Egyptian slave and says, I wanna bless you too. He's fulfilling what he said he would do in Genesis chapter 12, that he would bring blessing to the nations. Here's someone who's part of the nations, an Egyptian, and God says, my blessing is for you as well. And he promises to give her a son and multiply him to bless her in every way. But the shape of God's blessing is surprising. It's actually shocking here. He asks Hagar to go back and submit to Sarah. I don't know if when you're reading that, if that's caught you like it caught me. But it's difficult to understand. Why does he tell her to go back? I mean, why not liberate Hagar? Why does he send her back to Sarai? I'm not sure I have a full answer for that, but, but just a couple of things to consider. Here, here he says, he finds Hagar. He says, I'm going to bless you, but I'm as- actually asking you to call, I'm, I want you to turn around, do a U-turn, go back to Sarai, submit to her. I think this shows us, uh, first of all, that <clears throat> God sometimes allows hardship for those he loves. Have you found that to be true in your life? That when you make a decision to follow Jesus, right, when you go into baptismal waters and say, I'm giving my life to Jesus, I I am putting on the team jersey for Jesus, that's not gonna make your life easier. More likely, it's gonna make your life more difficult. Your your life is not gonna become daisies when you follow Jesus, right? It's not what prosperity gospel preachers tell you, that the, the gospel is about your prosperity and you're not gonna get sick and you're gonna be wealthy and healthy and happy and wise all of these things, that's not what the gospel is about. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, your life is gonna get more difficult. One of the reasons for that is because now you have an enemy. Before you knew Jesus, Satan didn't care about you. He was happy to leave you alone and let you just be happy and undisturbed. But once you plant a flag and say, I'm gonna be following Jesus, now you have an enemy and he's painted a target on your back. And so life is going to get really difficult. And just because God loves you doesn't mean that he's not going to allow you to walk through difficult things. God, even though he loves you, doesn't mean he won't allow you to endure pain. And so sometimes God even calls us to a season of hard obedience. But also God desires blessing for those he loves. That blessing may come in surprising ways. But I think the reason that he's calling Hagar to go back to Sarah is, is because of this. He had promised to bless Abram and Abram's family. He promised to bless those who blessed Abram, to curse those who cursed Abram. So God knew that the sphere of blessing for Hagar would be with Abram's family. And so what he's actually doing when he calls her to go back into something difficult, he's sending her back to the nation that he had promised to bless because God wanted to bless her too. Even though that path of blessing would look like hard obedience. God was looking at Hagar and saying, Hagar, I've got a plan for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a nation that comes from you, but I am asking you to trust me with your life. I'm asking you to be willing to do something hard. I'm asking you to be willing to go back to that place of hardship and just trust me that I know what I'm doing with your life. You know what Hagar does? Amazingly, she obeys. She trusts God. She goes back She does what Abram and Sarai failed to do. They weren't trusting God. They're taking things into their own hands. Hagar could have done the same thing. She could have said, I know better than God. I'll do it my way. I'll take things into my own hands. But she doesn't. She entrusts her life and her future to God, even though it would look like difficulty. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. What could could give Hagar the resources to do that? What, What could equip her to walk into a season of hard obedience, doing a U-turn and going back to that place of hardship, what could give her the power to do that? Well, the Lord gives two key revelations about himself at the end of this story. It's actually the key to the whole story. He he shows himself to her. He shows something about who he is to her that's gonna equip her with the resources to go into that season of hard obedience. Number, Number one, he's gonna say, I am the God who hears you. Did you notice that in verse 11? The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son and you will name him Ishmael. That means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. What could give Hagar the resources to go back into a season of hard obedience? Here's what it was. God was saying to Hagar, I hear you. I am the God who hears you when you cry. I am the God who heard you in your affliction. And Hagar, I'm asking you to trust your life and your future to me. I'm asking you, Hagar, to go into a situation that makes no human sense, to go back to Abram's household. But I want you to know, Hagar, I hear you. I'll hear you every time you call. Hagar, when you you are not sure that you can do it, when, when it gets difficult, you just call my name, Hagar, and I'll hear you. He is the God who hears. I hope you understand that no matter what you happen to, be, happen to be working through, what kind of mountain of impossibility you might be facing, God is the God who hears us when we cry. Equipped with this knowledge about who God was, God is going to hear me no matter what, when no one else can hear me. He can find me even all the way out in the wilderness of sure. If he can find me there and hear me there, he can hear me in this moment. Not only is he the God who hears, he's also the God who sees. Look at verses 13 through 16. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy. El Roy in Hebrew means the God who sees. You are the God who sees me. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That's why she called the well, Bir Lahai Roy, which means the the well of the living one who sees me. It's between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. In these verses, Hagar does what no one else in the entire Old Testament does. She is the only person in the Old Testament to ever give God a name. Every other name of God that you find in the Old Testament is a name that God gives He reveals about himself. It's it's a name that God has that he reveals. But here, she is the only one, it's the first and only time in your Old Testament where a human being names God. What's amazing to me about that is it's from an unlikely person, an Egyptian, slave, female. Now those words might not hit us the same way it would have hit, let's say, a Hebrew reading the Torah, that the Only time a human would ever name God came from an Egyptian female slave, which tells us no matter who you are, no matter what station of life you're in, no matter whether you're male or female, Jewish or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, you can know God. Hagar, this Egyptian female slave, names God, and notice what she names him. She names him Elroy, the God who sees me. That's beautiful. It's beautiful because there's been a motif of sight in this chapter. Have you noticed it? All the references to people's sight, there's something that Abram and Sarai cannot see. They they cannot see a child. So, So they take things into their own hands. Hagar gets pregnant, and Hagar saw that she was pregnant. So then Sarai becomes contemptible to her in her sight. In response to this, Abram tells Sarai to do to Hagar what is good in her sight. There's a whole lot of human seeing going on. But what about what God sees? In the midst of all of this human short-sightedness and fuzzy human seeing, there was one who knew Hagar, who heard Hagar, who cared for Hagar, who provided for Hagar, who had a plan for Hagar, who would bless Hagar, and who saw Hagar. In this story, God is the only one who sees Hagar. No one else in the story sees her. They just treat her like a piece of property. They don't see her as one who's beloved. They don't see her as a daughter of God. They don't see her as someone who's precious. They just see property. But God sees her. He could see her when no one else could. I don't know about you today. I don't know if you've come into this place and you just feel unseen. You feel like no one sees me. Let me tell you a beautiful truth. God sees you. God sees you. He's the God who sees. And that means that there is nowhere you can go. There's no desert. There's no wilderness. There's nowhere where God can't see you. God sees you when no one else sees you. And God sees what you can't see. Everyone in the story could see about this far. God had a plan much further than what they could see. Which means, folks, this is the big idea of the text today. You can trust the promise maker to be the promise keeper, even when you cannot see what he sees. When you can't see, When you see no way, when what you see looks impossible, you can rest in the fact (laughs) that God sees. Amen? Uh, Mac Brunson tells a story about a deacon at First Baptist Church of Dallas by the name of Ed Yates. Uh, I've had the opportunity to meet Ed once. Ed's uh, grandfather owned a uh, sheep ranch in the Texas hill country, kind of a weird thing to own in the hill country. Most people own cattle, he owned sheep. But uh, in, in, and this was his means of providing for his family, but in the depression, uh, Mr. Yates faced financial catastrophe. He was out of money. He didn't have money to, to feed his family, to pay the bills. He didn't know what to do. He thought he would lose everything. He thought he would lose his sheep ranch. He thought he would lose his family. He thought he would go to debtor's prison. He had no idea what he was going to do. And so he began to, to take government assistance. He would take a check from the government, try to make ends meet. And, and every day, Mr. Yates would, would walk up and down those hills, and he would watch those sheep, and he would worry <clears throat> about what he'd do if he lost it all. He'd just wring his hands. You know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How, how is this all going to work? And one day as Mr. Yates is walking up and down those hills and he's, he's watching those sheep and he's wringing his hands, he's worrying about the future, he, he sees a group of men start to make their way towards him out in the hill country, carrying what looked like sur- was survey equipment. So he goes out to meet them and it turns out they, they tell him that they think that there might be oil on his land. And they want to take some seismic readings to see if they can find oil. So Mr. Yates allows them to do that. Let me make a long story short. They began to drill and over a thousand feet below where Mr. Yates was standing, those men hid an oil deposit that was bringing out over 80,000 barrels of oil every day. They kept drilling. They found two more oil deposits. So they had three drilling rigs on his property. Now, just do quick calculation. I think... The price of oil per barrel is like $85 right now. It wasn't that back then, but let's just cut it in half. We're talking about millions of dollars every day. Here was Mr. Yates. Think about it. Walking the land, wringing his hands, worrying about what's going to happen, had no idea there was a wealth of oil under his feet that would turn his family overnight into multi, multi-millionaires. Here's Mr. Yates taking government subsidies, not realizing that God had already met his need, even though he couldn't see it. Listen, church, you can trust the promise maker to be the promise keeper because he can see what you can't see. Amen? Let's bow together. If you're here today and you need to make a spiritual decision or you want prayer or you want to know how you can have a relationship with the God who sees you through Jesus, I'm going to be waiting down here at the front at the end of the service. You can just come and talk to me. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Lord, we are thankful for who you are for us. We're thankful that you're the God who hears us when we cry. We're thankful that you're the God who sees us when no one else sees us and you can see what we can't see. Help us to live by faith, trusting you for everything. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.